0: contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.
1: Hello there ladies and gentlemen welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. What a special edition it is. I'll tell you about it in a second. First this episode is brought to you by Harry's. Harry's is a great shave at a fair price. Three million guys like me have switched to it. Why? Why? I get a close, comfortable shave every day. I've never had a cut. It goes on smooth. I've never had a cut, as I said. And also, the aftershave smells great. Not too fragrant, very masculine, but light. Harry's has stripped away all the unnecessary costs, and they pass the savings down to you. They deliver consumers one perfect razor at an amazing price. So go to com slash sports. That's S-P-O-R-T-S, all caps. All you're going to do is pay for shipping. You get this free trial shave set free a $13 value you're going to get a weighted ergonomic handle you're going to get five precision engineered blades a lubricating strip a trimmer blade the lathering shave gel that i talked about smells and feels great and a travel blade cover so get your free trial go to harrys.com slash sports that's all caps s-p-o-r-t-s right now that's harrys.com slash sports harrys a great shave at a fair price I've been wanting to have my old friend, Amy Trask on the podcast for a while. It just hasn't worked out for one reason or another, but you know, there's so many people I run into and they're like, I learned so much from you and also Amy Trask. (laughs) And it's all, I feel honored that I always seem to be lumped in with Amy and Long-time executive with the Raiders. Uh, we worked together, as my experience in the Packers, always enjoyed working with her. Welcome, Amy
0: Trask.
2: Well, thank you for having me, Andrew, and I have um, been a fan of yours for quite a while, a fan of your podcast, and if your listeners could see me now, and thank goodness they can't, uh, <laughs> I look a bit like a teenage girl. Uh, very, very excited to be on the phone with with a celebrity.
1: Well, I can say the same thing. So we have a mutual fan club, despite the fact, as we've noticed, we've gone back and forth on Twitter, the Golden Bears and the Cardinals. Stanford Cal, we have that for people who don't know. I'm a Stanford guy. Amy's a Cal girl, and here we are uh you know what what keep your enemies close your friends closer i guess right
2: well and and i certainly enjoy the experience of being able to participate um in such a terrific terrific successful podcast that has been put together by someone with you know the education you have <laughs> right
1: <laughs> yeah they let us and we were just talking before we came on that um here we are silicon valleyites uh, at least it was a different, it's a lot different back then. I mean, Stanford was like a college town when I went there. And now it's like, you know, you get an apartment for $10 million around Stanford. Um,
2: right. The whole the whole region has changed. That's for surely sure.
1: You know, and it's amazing. We'll start with the other night, um, Gene Steratore, who, by the way, Gene Steratore, I saw one Monday night. In November or December a year ago, doing a Monday night football game, and the next night, I'm at Villanova basketball, and guess who's out there being referee? Wow! <laughs> oh wow! We went from Monday night football to Big East college basketball. I'm like, wow, that guy is a moonlighter. I mean, that was impressive. That, but anyway, the other hurt. night, he's he's putting that putting that card down. Uh, denying your Raiders uh, a stand on fourth down, which looked like, wow, is this really happening? And you were saying, isn't that amazing where it was, you know, in terms of venue?
2: Right. Irrespective of what one thinks about that call, irrespective of whether one believes the decision was right or not, uh, irrespective of whether one believes it was appropriate to use an index card or not there is a tremendous irony that that was all happening 30 miles or so from the Silicon Valley. So you're, you're roughly 30. Actually I measured it once when we were looking at shared stadiums from the Oakland Coliseum (laughs) to Santa Clara in my little itty bitty car, 32 miles exactly. And yet we're using an index card. There's an irony there, obviously.
1: You know, it's interesting talking about your background we dealt with each other as uh, league meetings when you guys came to Green Bay, when we went to Oakland. Um, but let's fast forward because I've shared with my listeners, my readers, uh, TV, etc. I wanted kind of a different life when I left the Packers trying to create something in media and academia. When you left the Raiders, did you look for the same or were you just going to sort of let it flow and see what came out of that? You've obviously established yourself. In a similar way that I have, I'm just curious how you came to that.
2: Well, it was um, it, it what happened ultimately is, as you described, it flowed, but it didn't simply flow. I made an affirmative decision to allow it to do so. Right. And in fact, when I began um, the soul searching in which I engaged to make my decision, and by the way, the decision to leave the organization was the absolute hardest decision I have had to make in my life, which, you know, I understand means that I've had a very, very fortunate life. But the decision to leave um, the organization was just excruciatingly hard. And I was self-aware enough to know and to articulate to my husband Mm -hmm. that until I made that decision, and until I left I was not going to be able to think about what came next. I couldn't do both. I I found myself unable to think about and assess whether or not to leave and also to think about what was next. And Mm. Andrew, I was there almost 30 years. So, you know, I woke up the morning after I shared with ownership that I was going to leave. And I looked at my husband and I said, I'm a blight on humanity. I have nothing to do. And then things
1: flowed from there. Yeah, it's very similar. And I didn't experience nearly the tenure that you did. Uh, As you know, I came from the agent side, which I guess management called the dark side. Agents called management the dark side. Um, (laughs) And so I had a, a decade of that before a decade with the Packers. But it was time to do something else for me because I just felt like, Uh, Green Bay was a wonderful experience. It truly wraps itself around a team like no other place in the country. Fans, we miss so much about it, but I just, I I don't, I don't want to put down the life of an NFL executive because you never say never, but it just, I felt small. I felt like I've done all these contracts. I've done all these business operations with the football side. There wasn't a lot of new stuff on the horizon. I've hit a ceiling I want to get a little more diversity in my life. I want to get a little more cultural diversity in my kids' lives. Uh, and we came back east. But these are all tough decisions because I think what people don't really, are really used to hearing is people walking away from prestigious executive jobs in such a high profile industry like football. And you and I are living examples that, yes, you can do that and thrive beyond it.
2: And it's hard to do, Andrew. I mean, yeah. you know, I don't need to tell you that you just articulated. It's very, very hard to work, walk away. Now, you know, two things in that regard, nobody from my perspective has just ex- spread their wings and dominated um, all of the areas in which you are involved. Like you have, I mean, you, you, you just said it media you're, you're doing it uh, education. You're doing it. I mean, you, you're, doing it, and you're doing it spectacularly. And believe me, please, um, I think you know me well enough to know I I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. I often talk about you to my husband and say, look what Andrew's doing now. Look what Andrew's doing now. And you're setting a tremendous example for me in that regard. The one difference you and I had was, um, and when I say I was in the league almost 30 years, I would love to begin that sentence by saying, I started when I was 12. but right. the math doesn't quite work that way. But my, my experience was different than yours because working for directly for Al Davis, right. one thing I loved about my job is there were no two days in that almost 30-year period that were the same. Right. Now, some of those days were pretty rough. Uh, some of those days involved overhead projectors and the like, but no two days were ever the same.
1: You know, what's interesting is that We do share and we never really talked about this, but obviously I never worked for the Raiders, but we'd share kind of the Ron Wolf tie to Al Davis. I was connected to Al Davis by hearing so many stories from Ron Wolf and his impersonations and everything he learned. And by osmosis, I I felt like maybe I was learning from Al Davis just as you were right by his side all those years. Because Ron and we we had Ken Herrick for a while and Sean Herrick, Ken's son, and of course now Reggie McKenzie and Sean Herrick are back in Oakland. Uh so yeah, there was a little bit of osmosis and I guess you know, I mean you're the master at what you learned from Al Davis, but to me it it, it emanated from Ron that it was all about the players and Ron looked at me as, okay, I'm kind of the fulcrum point in the Packers. I'm kind of half in football and half in business. And he just kept drilling into me, Andrew, you can do all you want on the business side, but just remember this, and this was straight from Al Davis's mouth, it's all about the players. <laughs> it's all about the um, players. boy, oh, boy. He loved You're the players. Sentiment? Yeah.
2: Same sentiment, slightly differently articulated, and you're right, Ron got that from Al, as did I, from almost the moment I joined the organization until the day Al passed away, he said to me over and over and over again, and he believed this passionately, the players are the game. And you know what? It's really neat to to hear that Ron grabbed that, gleaned that, um, held on to that, and and my rejoinder to Al, when he would say, kid, the players are the game, you're right, I agree with you. But I also always reminded him, don't forget the fans. Yeah. Because without fans, there is no league. Now, these are two entirely different topics, but that was often a rejoinder I had from him, which is the players are the game. He was right. He passed that on to Ron. You heard about it from Ron. But I also reminded him that as much as there can be no game without players. There is no league without fans.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the other thing I just uh, you're so kind in in giving me kudos for the, all the work I've done since leaving the Packers. But the one thing I will say, and I think you have become one of the few like myself to do this, uh, to speak honestly and openly about your your perspective, your insights that are unique, is that. I decided early on that I wasn't really looking to get back. And I think what happens with executives, whether scouts, whether coaches, uh, whether front office people, when they leave NFL teams, a lot of them do want to get back. And that completely, in my mind, affects how they are on TV, how they are on radio, how they are on writing. Uh, and they're speaking because I, I won't name any names, but I just see them using it as resumes. And the one thing I decided right away, like I am going to open up, I'm going to bring people behind the curtain and I'm not going to worry about that. Now I have a manner, I hope I don't dress down people. I don't embarrass people. I try to do it professionally, but I'm not really holding back. And I think you have to be true to yourself when I left, I started a website with another common friend of ours from the Raiders, Michael Lombardi. And we had, you know, Lombardi left for NFL network. And then we were sort of talking to different people to come in and write, and they were all using it as really a resume. And I said, no, no, <laughs> we've got to get inside this. You don't have to dress down anyone. Uh And I guess my point is, I've been trying to do it in a professional way, but I'm not going to hold back and use it as a resume to get in. I think that helps me. And I see the same with you on TV, on Twitter, the way you do things. You're not, you know, you don't need to to sanitize everything you say, which I think so many do.
2: Well, I you know, I think you've um hit the proverbial nail on the head in many regards. And I'm smiling ear to ear. You can't see that, obviously, but at your use of the expression, to thine own self be true. Right. Uh, From the time I was the littlest girl, uh, my mother said to me, really, really, Andrew, from the time I can remember, to thine own self be true. And as only mothers can do, she repeated it about seven kabillion times (laughs) um, before I left for college. Now, mind you, it wasn't until I had almost graduated college. Hold off on the cow jokes here, because I'm setting this. I really am pitching this slow and easy, right across home plate. Okay. Um, I, I didn't realize my mom hadn't invented that saying, and <laughs> that it was really William Shakespeare, uh, and and that she was she was quoting Shakespeare. I don't know how to do anything other than be true to myself. So. Um, I I agree with you absolutely, positively and entirely that one can be open and direct, honest, forthright without being um, rude, without, I think you use the expression, dressing people down. It's possible to disagree agreeably, and it's possible to express a different opinion without personalizing it.
1: Indeed it is. And I think one thing as we look forward, uh, you know, I guess I have to ask because I get asked all the time, would you take another position with a team, with a league, with a union? Uh, and I've had inquiries as I'm sure you have. And I guess my answer has been, I never say never, uh, because you never know, you know, you never want to close off all, all your potential options. But when life is good, it's hard to look at other things. Uh, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy having time for myself and my kids. I'm I'm a runner, triathlete, and uh, I'm sort of a fitness nerd, which is really important to me. And all that is is in front of me with all the gigs that I do have. So I guess I'll ask you your thoughts on that, too.
2: Well, and, and, every, and look, and, and I would be saying this to you whether it was part of your podcast or not, because I am such a fan of all you do. Everything you're doing, you're doing exquisitely. And, and you're doing so many different things um, that it just seems like you're having a very, very good time dominating all of these different milieus. Uh, I Thank too you. have had a number of opportunities to go back into the league with not with the league itself, but I've had opportunities with a number of other teams. Mm-hmm. And to date I have, I have said, um, no, I hope I've done so graciously. And, and let me back up and, and tell you a little bit of the reason why I've chosen to say no to date, uh, you know, as well as I, from your years in the league that there are many, many people who move from team to team to team. I'm not talking about players and coaches, but front office people. Right. So, um, you know, your colleagues, my colleagues, one year could be wearing the green of the Philadelphia Eagles, and the next year the red of the Kansas City Chiefs right. or the red of the Kansas City Chiefs, and the next year um you know the the green of the New York Jets, and they moved around, and I never understood that yeah. now, you know my upbringing, if you will, in the league, was from the time I was very young all all joking about my age aside. I joined the Raiders in the mid 80s as an intern, Mm. joined them in the mid 80s as a full time employee and spent close to 30 years there. So I never viewed myself as the employee of an NFL club. I viewed myself as a Raider. I had the dream, the opportunity of a lifetime of working for the team that I loved, a team I fell in love with when it was in Oakland. And I was in college down the road in Berkeley, and it just so happened that when I came back to my hometown of Los Angeles for grad school, that was the year the team ultimately moved down uh, for good. Al had tried to move it earlier, and the court had ordered it back, and then he ultimately succeeded in bringing the team. So I interned for the team I loved, and I never considered myself a team employee. I considered myself a Raider so although other opportunities have been presented, um, they, it's just not, it just has not felt right to me. Now, um, if if I had equity, if I owned a team, mm-hmm. perhaps that's a horse of a different color, so to speak. But without ownership, um, I don't perceive myself ever going back as simply an employee.
1: Yeah. And gee, I have to ask this because When I think of Amy Trask, I feel like if I'm you, I kind of roll my eyes at questions about a woman in a male-dominated industry, because you probably hear it all the time, and you're probably asked to speak all the time, what's it like, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but what do you do with, with all those questions about that? And I'm sure, and the last thing is, I think you you hear from lots of young women about getting into this industry too, and they may be two separate conversations.
2: Well, um, you're right and you're right and you're right. Uh, I do hear, um, I am asked that quite a bit. I actually spoke to that at great length in the book that I wrote, uh, You Negotiate Like a Girl. I touched upon all those topics. One of the things I'm asked um, all the time is, do I believe that I was tested because I was a woman. And the answer is, I don't know. Maybe I was. Mm. Let's say I was. Well, you know what? We're all tested for different reasons at different times. Maybe we're tested because of our age, our gender, our race, our credentials. Um, We're all tested at different times. And what's the best thing to do when one is tested? Pass the damn test. So, you know, I never walked into a league meeting—not an owners meeting, not a not a meeting of not a team meeting, not a football meeting, not not a meeting of Raiders ownership, not a municipal meeting, a bank meeting. I never walked in thinking about my gender. It, it seems, um, boy, counterintuitive and downright nutty. Mm-hmm. If I want to go into a meeting with the expectation and hope that nobody will be thinking about my gender. Why does it make any sense for me to be thinking about my gender? Right. I
0: well
2: did my said. job.
1: Well said. And you brought up, uh, you brought up something that I give you so many kudos on. Cause I haven't gone there. You talk about all the things I've done. Well, I haven't not done. I have not had the bucket list check off of a book. And you have well, get and, to
2: that computer.
1: <laughs> and negotiate like a girl. This is an awesome book. And I will shout it out to all my podcast listeners. But I want to say this. You got to You got to tell me how to do this, because here's the one thing everyone tells me about a book. If you're going to do it, all those other things you're doing, you you got to sort of put them on the side for what, six, eight, 10, 12, 14 months. Do you agree with that? I don't buy it. You don't buy that.
2: No, I don't. And look, everybody has a different approach. I had a friend who was writing a book at the same time, and he told me his approach was to find someone to write it for him, go down to Mexico, drink tequila for about two weeks, (laughs) and tell this guy his story so he could write the book. Uh Now, my approach was a little different. I locked myself in the bedroom with a laptop, and I wrote 74,000 words in a very short period of time. Um, I asked Mike Freeman to do me the great 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 honor of helping me then shape that into a book and and make chapters and make things flow and and help me understand how to do that and The man deserves a, a medal of courage and patience for having agreed to help me and By the way, Mike Freeman is the person who thought of the title of the mm. book I had thought of something I thought of something dry and boring and dull and Mike suggested to me, you know, how about you negotiate like a girl? Because it's from a story in the book. And I, of course, rolled my little eyes, wrinkled my little <laughs> nose. And then two weeks later said, Mike, that's a hell of a good idea. But the, the funny ending to this whole story is, um, as I was locked in the bedroom writing these 74,000 words, my husband looked at me and said, maybe you should have tried to go to Mexico for two weeks and have tequila
0: approved. <laughs> it would have
2: been a lot calmer in the house. You, you'll do it, Andrew. It'll be a magnificent book. I will be the first one to buy it and read it and tweet about it. And you know what? You'll do it in the manner that suits you. To thine own self be true.
0: Indeed.
1: And thanks for that words of encouragement. And I'll probably be leaning on you, if I do it, every day and night for however long it takes. Um, Amy, what? let's get to sort of topics du jour. Uh. I'm going to just give you an open landscape. When you heard about someone who this word doesn't have the meaning it should now that what's happened, when you heard what I thought was a regal presence of Jerry Richardson and all the meetings I went to for 10 years, when you heard the news of workplace misconduct and within 24 hours franchise for sale, your thoughts
2: well, I'm going to start um, by disagreeing with one of your premises, not not disagreeing, but sharing that I had a different perspective of Jerry. Yes. Um, I never perceived him as a regal presence.
0: Okay.
2: Uh, I took issue with many of the positions he articulated when it came to the collective bargaining negotiations. Yes. He, as you, of course, know, because you were there, um, was chairman of that committee, and I I took issue with positions he stated, and I did not like the manner in which he stated them. But all of that said, you know, I had, you know, no concept whatsoever that any of what is being alleged um, could possibly have been going on. What do I think is going on now or what what the way I view it is that there's three separate um, buckets, if you will, bucket one is the accusations that have been leveled against him and the league is conducting an investigation into those accusations and into the workplace environment. Bucket two is the prospective sale of the franchise. And that is going to be a fascinating, Mm -hmm. fascinating um, business transaction to watch unfold. Bucket three is that Carolina is still very much alive this season with aspirations to go deep, deep into the playoffs. And Ron Rivera, uh, you know, for whom I have the highest, highest regard is going to have to navigate football X's and O's on field between the lines business. While all this in bucket one and bucket two is present and swirling. Now, I think the world of Ron Rivera as a coach, I think even more of him as a human being, and if anyone can navigate this, he can. I can think of a few other coaches I would want in place uh, were I a fan or were I an equity owner in the Panthers to navigate this while everything is swirling.
1: So much to react to. There are so many thoughts that I share. Let's first talk about this CBA You didn't really get into it, but I will. I saw someone who I think and still think and saw was the most hawkish. That's the word I'll use. Hawkish owner when it came to players. And there's a report in the Sports Illustrated article that goes back to this is years ago in the CBA negotiations of 2011, which I covered as media for ESPN rather than being in the room. Um, wow, the way he said to Peyton Manning or other players, son, do you not know how to read a spreadsheet? Or something very condescending. So, yes, that was something I noticed right away with him. And my first thought was almost like, wow, the NFLPA has just gained because whatever voice is going to come in on the Panthers' behalf is going to be a lot more conciliatory towards players. So, you are absolutely right on the CBA part of it. He just felt like these players were not, are, were not equals and should be put in their place financially.
2: Um, do we know, though, for surely, surely, sure, that whoever comes in will be less hawkish? Oh, we I mean, don't. You're chances right. Are you're right. Your, chance, and chances are you're right, because I agree with you entirely that he was, um, if not the most, to use your word, Hawkish owner, he was certainly among that top handful. So, because the bar was so high, chances are whoever comes in next won't be quite as hawkish. But I don't know that we really know that. And as to the Manning story that has been recounted recently, I do remember that story swirling at the time. Mm. Um, I wasn't in the room when that was said or allegedly said. But, you know, you're right. He was one of the, if not the most hawkish owner. but we don't know what's going to come.
1: And the second part about Rivera, I, had, I was able to sit in an interview. We came to a final group, actually in 2006, of Mike McCarthy, Sean Payton, and Ron Rivera, all Super Bowl coaches now. So that was quite a group. And I share your, uh, your impressions of Ron Rivera, your regard for him. Uh, and you're right. He is navigating a minefield right now. And kudos to him. Hey, he beat my Packers the other day in the midst of all this. So, uh, so far, so good for the Panthers.
2: Credit to you, because that was quite a small group that you uh, whittled the candidates down. Um, You whittled them down to a very, very small group of elite, elite coaches. And I will say, with a giant smile on my face and teasing, of course, that I'm a little impressed you let a cow bear get into that final group.
1: <laughs> we did indeed. And, uh, you know, a lot of people ask me, I, I guess it did come down to Sean and Mike, and it really was, to use a metaphor that's very in the news now, kind of paper thin or index card thin
0: <laughs> to <laughs> make
1: that decision. Well done. And you know what happens, and this is true in all all organizations, even football, sports, and beyond, I think what what put it over the top for Mike, he had been there. Uh, There had been some familiarity. He was on a staff, actually, head coach was Ray Rhodes, uh, and Mike McCarthy was quarterback coach. And that little familiarity for that time really sort of put it over the edge because, let's face it, that does matter in the hiring. If you know the culture, if you've been there, if you've experienced it firsthand, it's interesting how those things happen.
2: And by the way, since I referenced that Ron was a Cal Bear, I will tell you, and I know you've told me, whoa there, whoa there, slow your roll when I've done this on Twitter, leave him alone. (laughs) You said, back off there, Trask. But that coach you have at Stanford, David Shaw, Um, if I owned a team and I needed a head coach, I would fire up that jet, I would fly into that FBO right there near Stanford, Mm. and I would do anything I could to attract David Shaw. And that is not a cow bear saying, I want him out of Stanford. That would be sort of like bonus scrabble points. Um, <laughs> that is someone who has worked with David, which I did in Oakland, telling you he is just magnificent. Absolutely magnificent.
1: He is indeed. And yes, I do on Twitter and right now say slow your roll, honey, because <laughs> you're not getting him. <laughs> Um But anyway, he is, you know, I guess I sort of look at him and the way he's approached it the past couple of years, uh, the way Andrew Luck approached it when he was going to be that number one pick, uh, which obviously turned out to be Cam Newton the year before he came out, that Andrew came out where he basically said, you know, I can go to the NFL. I can stay another year at Stanford. I'll stay at Stanford. And that's now I'm being uh, obviously shining a light on, on what a great school it is because it's, you know he's got he's got the academics he's got the athletics he's got a top ten team. It's hard to turn away from that. Now I know they can throw all the money in the world at him, but we'll see what happens. And I, you know, of course, he's going to be hot prospect. Always is, but has been before.
2: I worked with him um, at the Raiders, and it was apparent to me and to to Al um, from very early on that he was some someone very, very, very special. And um, before I go back to being really, really mean about Stanford, I will say <laughs> this. Were, um, were I the parent of an athlete headed for college, I would trust David Shaw with my son, um, not only to coach him in football, but in life.
0: Well
1: said. And that sort of leads us to the the franchise for sale part of it, which is sort of the last part. I'll let you go after this. In terms of the the health of the league, as we end 2017 and look forward to the future of the NFL, I'll just sort of set it up because I'm asked this all the time. What about concussions? What about CTE? What about people going, leaving the sport? What about... Uh, the criticism of Roger Goodell and all the things. To me, I'll just say this. I talked to other sports executives in other leagues. They wish they had the NFL's quote-unquote problems. Uh, Right. I just think that these constant (laughs) quote-unquote, heavy on the quote-unquote, this constant quote-unquote crises, to me, only serve to juice the interest in a sport that is dominant, I don't say that because I've, I've been part of it and I'm covering it. I just sort of, there's a kind of a cottage industry that the NFL's in decline when I don't see any data to show that's the case. Ratings can be down now and then the, the take a knee can turn off sponsors a little bit, but it just perseveres and there's always a new story and it always kind of buries the old story. And the interest level to me is as strong as ever. Are you seeing it how I am?
2: Well, let me touch on two of the things you said because I, I do think we we share a number of views um, on the on the business of football and, and And the two things I want to touch upon are this: Roger Goodell is the employee of thirty two team owners
0: mm-hmm. and
2: he takes um, the barbs for those owners and that's, right. and that's part of his job and, and that's what he is compensated to do. But when people launch criticism and critique at Roger, I think they need to be mindful that Roger works for 32 different men. Um, Often those men don't always agree between and among themselves, as you know. Um, I started in the league at roughly the same time Roger did. I mean, within a year, maybe I was a year earlier, maybe he was a year earlier. But I grew up within the league with Roger, and one thing I know about him is he cares deeply about the national football Mm -hmm. league. So whether you like his decisions or you don't like his decisions. And and let me tell you, I don't always agree with him. There are things he does with which I take issue, but I also know that he is the employee of 32 owners and he is acting for them um, in all regards and, and representing what they want done. Uh, The second part, of what I will say is, is this as to concussions mm-hmm. um, and health and safety issues. The league cares deeply about making the game as safe as possible. And to those people who take issue with me when I say that, I say, well, wait a minute. Just look at this from a business perspective, from a financial perspective. The league has every single business interest, economic interest, in health and safety and making the game as safe as possible. Now, Andrew, I'm not suggesting there aren't people at the clubs and in the league office that don't care about making it safe for other reasons. That was horribly stated. I think I had about seven negatives in that (laughs) sentence.
0: Um,
2: There are many people around the league, at teams and in the league office, who do care deeply about health and safety for non-financial reasons. But to those who are dubious that they care – look only at the financial reasons and understand that the league has every incentive to make the game as safe as possible. Is it ever going to be entirely safe? No, it's a contact sport. Or as a player once said to me very, very early in my career when I was at practice with some of our business partners. And I said, well, you know, it's a contact sport. The player very nicely corrected me and said in good humor, no, Amy, it's not a contact sport. It's a collision sport. Right. But that said, the league is working to make it as safe as it can.
1: I agree on both. I think on Goodell, I've talked about him over the years. I call him the conduct commissioner. He's made conduct his priority, much to the chagrin of some. Sometimes he's criticized for being too overreaching, sometimes criticized for being too soft, as with Ray Rice. I think the point is he's doing what he's paid to do and told to do by the owners. Now he has his own initiatives, which I think is the player conduct is one of his primary ones that comes from within. But the one thing I wonder about Roger is, and I've talked to him about this, his, he can come across as robotic, as corporate, as guarded, as very unrevealing and sometimes bland. When I've seen, I'm sure you have as well, a more human side, a more vulnerable side. I've seen him take an interest in players that we had that had problems off the field, not just discipline them, but actually take an interest in their rehab. Um, So there is this softer side of Goodell. And I think it speaks to what you talked about. He is being driven by his constituency, which are owners, sponsors, networks, corporate executives that want an iron jawed, strong leader that maybe not show as much of the softer side that we have seen. So I think people sometimes look at him and give him exactly what you talked about, the heat seeking missile. So the owners don't have to take it. And he serves them well in that regard, as much as people don't like
2: it. Well, and and I will just add this. Um, I make it a practice to not, um, criticize people for their public demeanor, um, and I'm not suggesting you're doing that, you're doing the antithesis, but for those who level criticism at someone for the manner in which they comport themselves in public or the the demeanor that people perceive they, they have in public, there have been times I have exuded something or comported myself in a way which is just uncomfortable. And, and, and I'm getting tongue tied trying to explain this, but I just know that there are times when I am in public that I don't quite know how to feel comfortable and and I'm growing into that, but I don't judge other people by the manner in which they, they look publicly. It's really more about content of character and um, substance as opposed to appearance. And I'm not suggesting you're judging on appearance. You're just pointing out that right. others do. And I, I, think you're, I think those are fair points that you're making. And, and the fact is, you're absolutely right. He's representing 32 owners in a manner that often deflects off of them what lands on him.
1: And you know this as well as anyone, and maybe as well as anyone I could talk to about this subject. Every team in the league, without exception thinks that the commissioner and the league office treats other teams better than they treat their own. (laughs) So
2: Absolutely, positively right. And and the one thing I will add to that is that each of the 32 teams, and I will raise my hand and say I was absolutely, positively, not only one of them, but probably atop the list – articulates that to the league in a manner that (laughs) really is befitting a five-year-old. I mean, you know that, Andrew, we would call the league office and why did that, it's like, you know, well, mom, why'd you do that for the Packers? Or, you know, why did the Texans get that? I mean, we really sounded like five-year-olds and I used to say to people, one thing I loved about my job was I worked in an industry where not only was it acceptable, it was, Endorse that we could all act like five year olds at times.
1: <laughs> and I think what we're both saying is a bit of a defense for Roger and the entire league office because that's what they're dealing with. That's what they're dealing with. And I would sometimes pull back Ron or I'd pull back someone in our office and I'd say, listen, we got to pick our spots because. We call in now. It's like I tell my wife about when she wants to call the teachers at school for my kids. Pick your spots, pick your spots, because if you call every time, they're just going to say, "Oh, roll their eyes." That team's calling. That that parent's calling.
2: Okay, I, I called every time. We called every time. <laughs> you were the one we that called. called, absolutely- called Every time. And, and um, I, I just, there, there, were some great, great, great men at the league office with whom I want worked. And, you know, Al would, Al would say, you know, you call that friend of yours up and you <laughs> tell him X, Y, Z. And I'd call him up and I'd say, now, listen, I'm going to tell you a few things. And he would say to me, wait, 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 let me get my pen. Okay. <laughs> and, and he would be mocking me to the point where by the end of the conversation, we were both laughing. Um, look, Everyone in the league office is handsomely con- uh, compensated. People at teams are handsomely compensated. Uh, these are fun travails to have. And, you know, look, I will say about the 32 owners uh, that, or, or in the case of Green Bay, I guess it's 31 owners plus mm-hmm. umpteen Packerites. She so,
0: says, and by the yeah. way,
2: that was, always, <laughs> that was always a complaint we had, Mr. Brandt which is when you all needed to raise some money, you sold a little more stock. And believe me, there were a lot of us teams calling in and saying, but mom, the Packers are doing it. Um, But you know, Guilty as charged, guilty
1: as charged. But I will say say this on the other hand our inferior inferiority complex drew from not having the owner. You mentioned 31 plus green Bay. Where we felt like, well, we just kind of got patted on the back or patted on the head saying, go back to your little burg in Wisconsin. (laughs) Because we didn't have the billionaire or in those days, multi-hundred millionaire owner that could be, I don't know, force his way to a decision that would be more favorable. So we had our little paranoia about that, even though, yes, we could raise money on a dime because of our vast uh, Packer nation, which was strong and wide.
2: Well, there you go. We each, the two sides of, I'm, I'm fond of saying every coin has two sides and that was two <laughs> differing perspectives. Um, but, you know, 31 owners plus the Packers, I will say this about all of them. Each of those owners um, and, and the Packer representative, uh, they cared deeply about the league. Yes. They may not, um, do things that are always popular with fans. And by the way, the 32 teams don't always agree with one another, and I think that's healthy. But, you know, whether you agree with the decisions they make or not, of course they care deeply about their clubs and about the league. And some of those little fracases we had about, well, you know, Mom, why'd they get this? They were a lot of fun.
1: Yes, they were. Last question, (laughs) we look look – towards a sale, as you talked about, P. Diddy, and already thrown his hat in the ring. But I think the bigger issue is the health of the league going forward. I sort of brought this up earlier. I guess I'm going to look at it in terms of what you see the biggest challenge is. And I have written and talked about. My view is, like you said, not concussions, not CTE, not social protest. In my view, it is this. Attracting and maintaining younger viewers. And I don't know if that's going to mean much more streaming. I don't know if that's going to be heavy doses of Twitter and Google and Amazon and Facebook, something to make it less than a three-hour product. But to me, that's the biggest challenge for every sports league, not just the NFL. And the new Verizon deal and some of the side screen advertising going on now is a recognition of that.
2: And, and it, look, um, it's and it's not just a sports issue, although, you know, certainly it is for the reasons you just indicated a sports issue. But when you look at what's going on with entertainment content mm-hmm. and you look now at Netflix and Hulu and, um, you know, kids today don't. And, and I say that in, in quotes and with a smile on my face. It used to be that when we were growing up, if you wanted to watch a TV show, whether it was Mannix or I don't know where that just <laughs> popped into yeah, my brain Mannix, or, sure. you know, another Right, or another um, now. R- right now, all the kids that listen to your podcast are hurriedly googling Mannix. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, you waited till it was on every once a week, and you watched it. Now, you know, people of a younger generation they binge watch series of television shows. My point being that the landscape is not only shifting for sports, it's shifting for entertainment and content consumption in general. Now I had the great privilege and pleasure of serving on the league digital media committee, which was headed by Jonathan Kraft. Mm -hmm. And so I can tell your listeners firsthand that the league has been contemplating, considering, exploring, analyzing these issues, going back more than a decade this is nothing that has caught the league by surprise nor has it caught, caught the television networks by surprise there are a lot of really really smart people at networks and at the league that have been thinking about this for more than a decade and i'm excited to see what's next as i said not just in sports but in entertainment
1: what do you see is the biggest story put you on the spot here 2018 in the NFL.
2: Ooh, um, I gonna, think the fun of it is I have no idea. I have no idea. Yeah, I'm um, just thinking think out
1: loud. We're gonna have it. a we're gonna have a franchise sale. Um, oh, which, by
2: the way, the the business nerd <laughs> I am. Yeah. I cannot wait to watch that unfold. I mean, you know the process. I know the process. You know. Uh, All the terms of a sale have to be approved by the ownership, by three-quarters of the ownership. But before it even gets to the membership for a vote, it goes through committee. And before it gets to the committee, it's buffed and rubbed and scrubbed by the league office. I cannot wait to watch that unfold. So um, that's the business nerd in me. But beyond that, I bet we'll be surprised that there'll be some stories we're not even thinking about.
1: There is every year. It just happens that way. And as I said... The Tom Brady year, ratings up. The Ray Rice year, ratings up. Yeah, we had a hiccup with last year, but I just think we're in a, you know, I I lived in Europe for a while, Amy, and it just seems to me that European kids are like mainline soccer in their veins when they're like four and five years old. And that seems to be what happens here. It's the power of the NFL for all the criticism it takes seems to be inexorable.
2: Well, you said it beautifully earlier. You said there's a lot of leagues that would love to have these, quote, problems, close quote. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you reference living in Europe. I'm also fascinated to watch the league as it continues to navigate international venues. Um, mm-hmm. I continue to believe that Mexico City is a good option, particularly for the teams that are in the western half of the United States. Uh, you know, it's, it's a haul to go to Europe. And even though people say, well, you know, you can play a game on the East Coast and stay there and go from there. It's still a long haul. So, you know, perhaps if the league does play more and more games in Europe, it will consider doing more and more in Mexico City or places more proximate um, to the West Coast teams. But I've got my eye on the international issue. I think that's fascinating. Um, So that'll be fun to watch as well.
1: I do, too. I think everyone's looking to tap those revenues where the NBA, because of the nature of the game, has been able to do more of that. but. The NFL is certainly dipping its toe, as we know, in London and Mexico City, and I would think it would venture beyond that as well.
2: Andrew, I would like to share one thing before you give me the old throat slash that indicates you're done listening to me, which is (laughs) the coldest day of my entire life. I have never, ever, ever been in a colder venue or been as cold as a game we played on December 26th in Green Mm. Bay.
0: And as we were,
2: I don't remember the exact year, but the game was on December 26th. And um, I remember in the bus driving from the team hotel to the stadium, I was sitting um, either the row in front of, or the row right behind Jim Otto. And he laughed so hard when I pointed out the window and I said, what is that? What are those people doing? And just this tone, like I I was incredulous that they even wanted to be outside And Jim just looked at me and laughed and said, Amy, that's called ice fishing. (laughs) Well, there you go. I'd never before seen ice fishing.
1: It's amazing that I lived there that long. I didn't ice fish. I didn't snowmobile. I didn't hunt. I didn't drink a lot of beer. (laughs) Somehow I survived. I was a little bit of an anomaly, but it was a unique experience. Like they say in that army commercial, it was not just a job. It was an adventure.
2: If only they'd had GoPro back then and we could have had a a mini series on Andrew Brandt living in Green Bay. That would have been good content.
1: Yeah, going to my health food store every lunch, just praying that me and Aaron Rodgers and about five other players would keep it in business because we were the only ones that went there. Um, And my story from Oakland, I remember being there at the other end of the spectrum in like an August preseason game and i was wearing god knows it whatever happened to these but it was so hot i was wearing linen pants i don't know why but it was it was i was sweating it was
2: crazy that was the bay area it doesn't even get particularly hot <laughs> yes. up there so
1: i had my my linen pants and i'm walking i guess across the field to get to the press box before the game and i just remember Someone just yelling at me with this <laughs> this with this incredible this black and silver face looked right in my eyes and said these four words. Hey asshole, nice pants. <laughs> That's my memory. I'm
2: about, to have <laughs> I'm, I'm about to have what my husband labels one of my giggle fits. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Raider Nation beautifully stated. <laughs> What a great I, – I wish I'd been standing right
1: there to hear it. <laughs> oh, and then I do I do have to end with uh, a much, much more serious and somber note because that will be one of the moments when I do write that book that you're encouraging me to do. I'll do a chapter on that night, that whole weekend in Oakland. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs>
2: yeah. Come
1: on, come on. When, uh, uh, when Brett um, – so we were at the Piedmont yeah, Hotel I- in Berkeley and – it was a Sunday. We'd actually we didn't do this often, Amy, but we did fly out for a Monday night game. We flew out, I believe, Saturday, maybe even Friday. And I loved being at the Piedmont, loved hanging out in Berkeley. Uh, but it was Sunday afternoon where I got the call from Bus Cook, Brett's agent, uh yeah. said, Where's Brett? And I said, I don't know. And he said, Irv died. And Irv, Brett's father was a fixture around the Packers. I uh, knew everyone, part of the team basically, and it caught it sort of took my breath away. But then I realized we got to find Brett, and Brett was golfing <laughs> with Doug Peterson and Ryan Longwell, and Brett, as is his custom, didn't carry a phone. So finally, after many times just trying to find out how we get to him, someone got a hold of Doug Peterson, and. Doug handed him the phone and Deanna told him, uh, and then Brett came back to that Piedmont hotel and he said, first thing I'm going to play. My dad's a coach. I'm going to play. And he walked into that room with the whole team waiting. And he said those words and he just said, I love you guys. You love me. I'm going to play. And there wasn't a dry in the house. And then the game, where balls would just come out of the sky and land in our receivers' yeah, hands. Yeah. It, it's a memory I'll never forget. And then three days later, we're at a funeral in Mississippi. So, what a whirlwind uh, my uh, my last time playing in Oakland was when I was with the Packers. Uh,
2: and Andrew, let me just say this: when you started to tell this story, and I was sort of flippantly saying, "No, no, 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 no," and and laughing. Um, where I thought you were headed was just to talk about the um, 1,792 touchdowns you scored that night, because that's (laughs) what it felt like. Um, And those balls were heaven sent, heaven delivered, um, coming out of nowhere, being caught. And I certainly wouldn't have been so flippant or silly had I known you were going to recount the story of of Brett losing his father. But you guys um, destroyed us on the field that night, and yet I want you to know – there was no one associated with our organization whose hearts weren't with Brett that night. And as much as we, you know, wanted, you know, you know, as well as, as anyone that's been in the league, what goes on between the lines during the game is very different from the relationship people have outside of the lines and um, before and after kickoff and our hearts were with Brett that night.
1: Yeah. And we felt that. And I think that's a nice way to end it because you and I competed for years against each other on the field, but off the field. We're respected colleagues and now friends through our mutual roles in media now. What a pleasure to have this hour together, a mutual fan club that we have. Really well,
2: my Amy. My privilege and my pleasure. And um, I really – I have started the California chapter of the Andrew Brandt Fan <laughs> Club. I'm its president, and I love, I love all the work you're doing, and it really – um I, I learn things from you all the time, and it's just a pleasure to follow your work.
1: And that is so true, with a ditto to end it here. So thanks so much, Amy. You are a now, hopefully, regular and frequent guest on the Business of Sports podcast. I hope so, too. Have you back soon. Thanks, Andrew. Hope you enjoyed that wide-ranging conversation with Amy Trask, kind of a deep dive into our thoughts on our lives since the NFL, running teams when we were in the NFL, what's going on inside sports and the NFL, and all of that with Amy Trask. You can listen to all my podcasts on iTunes. Give us a good rating if you would. Stitcher, tune in, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter, at Andrew Brandt, and I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.
0: Thanks for listening to the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional Insider Insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft podcasts, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.